I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Chronic fatigue syndrome has been controversial for years. Now, some people are suffering similar symptoms after COVID. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Long COVID may affect anywhere from 10 to 30% of those who've been infected with SARS-CoV-2. Some of the most common symptoms include brain fog, fatigue, shortness of breath, and palpitations. Doctors don't know yet what causes long COVID or how to treat it. That's left millions of people in the lurch. Our guests today are both involved in research to better understand the causes, consequences, and treatments of post-COVID syndrome. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what have we learned about long COVID? In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, there's good news about influenza for a change. According to the CDC, the flu season is starting to wind down. That's earlier than usual. But this fall, influenza infections started much earlier than usual. That followed the pattern epidemiologists saw in the Southern Hemisphere. There are still many cases of type A, H3N2 influenza, but the incidence is dropping. Last week, only 4% of the people who saw their doctors had an influenza-like illness. Some years, there's a second wave of flu caused by type B strains, but Australian public health authorities did not report such a pattern this year. Long COVID is creating confusion within the medical community. A study from Israel published in the BMJ reviewed 70 long COVID outcomes in unvaccinated infected patients. Those researchers concluded that mild COVID-19 infections led to symptoms such as loss of smell and taste, along with brain fog, shortness of breath, and weakness. Most of these symptoms disappeared within a year. A small Canadian study confirmed that most patients recover from long COVID within a year, but 25% had persistent symptoms and autoantibodies. Another study reached quite a different conclusion, however. Researchers analyzed more than 200 peer-reviewed studies and concluded that about 10% of people recovering from COVID-19 suffer persistent symptoms. The investigators warned that long COVID affects multiple organ systems and may lead to lifelong disability for many patients if no action is taken. In a large randomized controlled trial of vitamin D supplementation, researchers found that heavier participants did not benefit as much as others. The VITAL study included more than 16,000 adults who took vitamin D or placebo for two years. Those who were overweight or obese had lower levels of circulating vitamin D when the study started. More importantly, their levels of vitamin D markers did not rise as much when they took the pills. The researchers suggest that this may help explain why heavy people don't seem to get the same protection from cancer or diabetes from vitamin D supplements. When normal weight volunteers took the pills providing 2,000 international units of vitamin D daily, their vitamin D levels rose significantly. The investigators note that this response is diminished when people are carrying excess fat. 
One possible explanation is that vitamin D, as a fat-soluble compound, gets stored in adipose tissue. Consequently, it's less available to other body tissues. It's impossible to watch television these days without seeing a lot of prescription drug commercials. Over the last two decades, advertising has quintupled and now accounts for two-thirds of the direct-to-consumer advertising budgets. Pharmaceutical companies promote products for AIDS, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, heart failure, and other serious medical problems. A lot of people complain about these commercials, but the FDA seems powerless to change them. Drug companies defend their promotional campaigns as valuable educational material that alerts patients to new advances in therapeutics. A study published in JAMA Network Open analyzed drugs advertised on TV. Independent agencies in France and Germany rated less than one-third of the most advertised drugs as having high therapeutic value. According to the investigators, manufacturers' television advertising spending on included products rated as low therapeutic value was $15.9 billion from 2015 to 2021. The authors suggest that consumers might benefit if television ads for drugs included comparative information on effectiveness and safety. Benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, or BPPBV, is a common cause of disturbing dizziness. It occurs when calcium crystals in the inner ear get out of place. A simple repositioning maneuver has been recommended to correct the problem. Korean researchers tested whether BPPV could be successfully treated by providing web-based video instructions for the maneuver. They conclude that people with BPPV can benefit from web-guided self-treatment. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. At last count, over 100 million Americans have caught COVID-19. Recent research suggests that many are left with lingering symptoms that have disrupted their lives. To learn more about long COVID, we turn to Dr. Leora Horwitz. She's professor of population health and medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Horwitz is part of the NIH Recover Initiative to better understand long COVID. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Leora Horwitz. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Horwitz, you're helping to lead the clinical science core for the NIH Recover program. Uh, That's to help us better understand long COVID. I guess the first question is, how do you describe long COVID, Uh, starting with some of the symptoms? I know that there are so many symptoms, we've almost lost count, but what are the key players? Actually, it turns out one of our first tasks in Recover is to create that definition, because as you so clearly note, there are many different symptoms that people have. And it is probable that long COVID is not one thing, but many things. Among the many things, though, that are most common are symptoms like fatigue. And even more than that, not just ordinary tiredness, but a sense of exhaustion after doing even the most minimal amount of physical or mental even effort. 
Uh, that is very common. And that's also typical of myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is another post-viral condition. But we also hear people talking often about trouble concentrating, trouble thinking. They call it brain fog. Specific things to COVID, like loss of smell or taste from the original infection, often will last for a long time as well. And we also hear about things like joint pains, trouble breathing, shortness of breath, uh, hair loss, so sort of a, a variety of other sorts of symptoms as well. Sometimes we hear that people have a dysregulation of their blood pressure. So if they stand up, their blood pressure just drops and they may become so dizzy they can't stand up. Is that something that you've seen? Yes, that's another important category of symptoms. We call it dysautonomia or problems with regulating blood pressure. Sometimes it's not even so much that the blood pressure drops, but that the heart rate speeds up. Sometimes both of those are normal, and yet people are still very dizzy. So it doesn't always correlate um, very well to blood pressure, but definitely the sense of dizziness or lightheadedness or goofiness uh, on standing up is another common symptom we hear about. Dr. Horowitz, do we have any idea what's causing all of these diverse symptoms, whether it's vascular, which sounds like what you're describing with this, um, what we refer to in pharmacology as orthostatic hypotension, but also what could be causing the brain fog or the incredible fatigue. Any idea? Yeah, well, that, of course, is one of our main goals in Recovered uh, to try to understand that. And just like people have lots of different symptoms, there probably also are lots of different causes. So there are certainly people who have damage from the virus or the original infection that never gets better. Those are people who might have lung scarring from the original pneumonia or that loss of smell or taste that doesn't get better or a stroke or damage to the kidneys, things like that. So that's one category of long-term consequences that are caused by damage from the original infection or inflammation. Then there's probably people who have some autoimmune response. Their body gets confused and starts uh, attacking itself as a result of the infection. And that is probably related, although we're still trying to figure out what kinds of antibodies those are. There is suggestive evidence now from a variety of very small studies that there could be some people who still have virus active in the body even months later. And it's possible that that constant low level of inflammation or infection could be causing symptoms. And then there's people who think that perhaps it's not about COVID, SARS-CoV-2 virus at all, but that the virus maybe reactivates other kinds of viruses like Epstein-Barr virus which we know is related to other sorts of neurologic uh, diseases like multiple sclerosis. So it could be, it, and it is very likely, a mix of many different causes. Dr. Horowitz, we've talked about the incredible variability in symptoms. We've also seen a wide range in estimates of how many people experience long COVID after a COVID infection. It's run from maybe as many as half to as few as, you know, two or three percent. The most recent that we saw in an article in JAMA Network Open was about 15 percent of adults 
does that correspond to anything that you are seeing? Well, I think this is a very challenging question for many reasons. And I'll, I'll go through a couple of those reasons. First is that the virus itself has changed a lot. And it could well be that the rate of long COVID after the original virus is different from that after Delta or after Omicron or any of the other variants. So the virus itself being different may cause different numbers of people to have long symptoms. The treatments have changed. I was on the wards in, in March of 2020 here in New York City when we had just, you know, the first extreme uh, wave of COVID and we had no idea what we were doing. The treatments that we have now are radically different and may influence the risk of having long COVID. We now have vaccination that we didn't have back in 2020. That too, we, we strongly suspect influences the rate of long COVID. And then finally, the symptoms that we've been describing, while more common in people with, with long COVID, are also present in others. And so distinguishing the people who have symptoms because of the COVID infection versus people who might have those symptoms from other diseases or just from, um, you know, this, the pandemic itself uh, is difficult. So because of that, the populations that are being studied make a big difference to the estimated rates and the definitions that are being used make a big difference to the estimated rate. So I, I can't say that we are seeing, you know, X percent or Y percent in recover. It's really uh, very variable depending on the population, depending on when they first got infected, depending on whether they are vaccinated and so on. We've been talking mostly about adults. What about children? Are children affected? Children certainly are affected. We know that there are children who have long-term consequences, but happily, uh, they have a lower rate of long-term consequences and a lower rate of severe illness. And those two things are probably related. We know that um, the more severe the original disease, the more likely you are to have long-term consequences, even though there are lots of people who had mild disease originally or even asymptomatic disease originally who have long-term consequences. And because there are just more people who have had mild disease than very serious disease, the bulk of the people with long-term symptoms are those who've had mild disease. But nonetheless, the risk is higher with more severe disease and children tend to not get as sick. The implications are pretty scary because even though we may not have an exact percentage, it may not be 15 percent, it may be 10 percent, it may not be 7 percent, but it might be 20 percent. Whatever the number, given the number of people who have been infected in this country, and then when you go worldwide, 600 million, more than 600 million people have been infected with covid uh, the implications for our public health system, for our hospitals, for doctors, and of course, most importantly, for patients, are daunting. Yes, they really are. And, and this is why the government is really putting so much effort into better understanding long COVID, the frequency of it, the definition of it, the risks for it, the treatment of it, because indeed the sheer numbers are pretty staggering. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned vaccines. Do people who get vaccines have a lower risk of developing lung COVID? 
Yeah, the literature so far suggests that they probably do. It's not, the literature is not perfect and there's some mixed results, but on balance, the papers are suggesting that in fact, vaccination is protective. Uh, again, being vaccinated generally helps people avoid very severe disease and makes disease milder if they get it at all. And so that's helpful. If people wanted to participate in the Recover program, how would they do so? They would go to recovercovid.org, recovercovid.org, and right at the top of the page is a, a link that says, you know, click here to find out if I can sign up. I will comment that we are enrolling for children of all ages. We are enrolling adults, and we are also uh, enrolling a certain number of people who have passed passed away and uh, whose families are interested in uh, having autopsies performed so we can understand the what's happening in the body. On the adult side, we have had tremendous interest and response, and we are all full up on people who have had infection in the past. But we still are, we are reserving slots in our study for people who sign up right within 30 days of an infection. It doesn't have to be their first one, any infection. Um, and that's so that we can really understand what kind of changes in the body and in the immune system and in the blood right at the time of infection might influence long-term COVID. So we still have spots for uh, people with uh, within 30 days of infection. And we have spots for people who have never been infected because it's quite important for us to be able to compare what's happening in people who had COVID with people who didn't. So both of those uh, categories are, uh, we have plenty of space. On the children's side, we have lots of space for people of all ages and whether they've had COVID or not, we're active or in the past, we have uh, spots still for, for a variety of groups. Dr. Leora Horowitz, Thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Leora Horwitz. She's Professor of Population Health and Medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Horwitz is part of the NIH Recover Initiative to better understand long COVID. After the break, we'll find out about another long COVID research initiative. Do we need a whole new way to think about post-infectious syndromes? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com.
Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, our topic is long COVID. Doctors have a lot of names and descriptions for this condition. Basically, it refers to persistent symptoms or even new symptoms appearing more than a month after an initial COVID-19 infection. Symptoms such as brain fog, exhaustion, shortness of breath, muscle aches, chest pain, and palpitations are common and debilitating. Researchers are trying to determine how common these problems are and how long they last. One large analysis of more than 200 peer-reviewed studies warned that if nothing is done, many millions of people could be faced with lasting disabilities. We are talking now with Dr. Amy Proal a microbiologist who studies the molecular mechanisms by which bacterial, fungal, and viral pathogens dysregulate human gene expression, immunity, and metabolism. Dr. Proal is the founder of the PolyBio Foundation and the chief science officer and co-founder of the Long COVID Research Initiative. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Amy Proal. Hi, thank you for having me. Dr. Prowell, we understand that you are co-founder of the Long COVID Research Initiative. What can you tell us about that, how it got started? Yeah, so I am the president of a nonprofit research organization called PolyBio Research Foundation. And for the last three years, we've been creating innovative collaborative research projects on what we call infection-associated chronic disease, so conditions initiated or exacerbated by infection. And before the COVID pandemic even began, we were already studying related conditions that begin with viral infections. So for example, there's a condition called myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS for short. And that's a condition that more people need to know about in which patients develop truly debilitating symptoms that can last a lifetime after other viral infections. So enterovirus infections, herpes virus infections, some viruses similar to SARS-CoV-2. So what we were doing is we identify areas of research on those diseases where, where key core trends are not being studied, and we build collaborative research teams of scientists from different institutions, from Harvard, from Stanford, from Johns Hopkins, from all across the world, actually, even other international locations. And we build collaborative projects to fill those gaps and to study some of the core biological trends. And so when the COVID pandemic started, my colleagues at PolyBio and I unfortunately knew that long COVID would become a thing. And what I mean by that is that a subset of patients who get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they get COVID, develop debilitating, a wide range of debilitating chronic symptoms that, again, don't go away. So up to, I don't know, about 7%, give or take, depending on what studies you look at, of patients who are getting COVID are developing these chronic symptoms. And we actually knew that was very likely to occur because we were studying these other pathogens that do the same thing. 
And so my colleague, my Harvard colleague, Mike Van Elzeker, and I wrote a paper on biological factors that could contribute to the development of long COVID. And we pulled from our existing knowledge of the science on the other conditions to actually write down the top trends of what we thought might be happening in the disease. And I can explain some of those later because they actually continue to be the main trends that are actually being studied and and found to be uh, really important. We really want to hear about that because we spoke with a physician, I'm going to say maybe 30 years ago, he was working, was it at Lake Tahoe, Terry? And he saw a cluster of patients who, after some kind of a viral infection, it was sort of like the flu, all developed what he described as chronic fatigue. And it, I think, became known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And nobody really paid much attention to him. And, and nobody really believed it. And so here we are. 20, 30 years later, and I'm really (laughs) delighted to know that you have been basically dealing with these very issues for quite a long time, even before COVID showed up. What do you think is going on? What, what, What are the common denominators that lead to these debilitating symptoms? Yeah, great question. And I'm so glad you interviewed that Lake Tahoe doctor. I think I might know who it is. And that's such an important story. There have been outbreaks like that across the world that that are uh, tied to what became called chronic fatigue syndrome. That's very similar to long COVID. And by the way, his colleagues didn't really believe him. That's an issue with long COVID too, where the issue is that patients look okay, right? Like the disease does not you know, your arm doesn't swell, you don't develop a sore or anything like that, right? A clear manifestation of illness. It's very likely symptoms occurring inside the central nervous system in patient tissue, right? And so a patient might look okay. And there's a higher proportion of women, and we don't know exactly why that's something we're studying, who develop ME-CFS and related conditions and now long COVID as well. And honestly, there is a history of women actually being less believed about having organic illness than men that unfortunately derives from certain uh, aspects of psychology. So it's a quick thing for some doctors to jump to a psychosomatic diagnosis in those patients and say, well, you look fine. Some of the blood work we did, which is extremely minimal, by the way, looks okay. Maybe this is just in your head, right? And that's, that's wrong. Um, it turns out that when there are patients that often test, it seems like their doctor's tests are in range. When we bring them into a research study and we use more innovative and novel methods to test their blood or, or, or examine their tissue, we find plenty of abnormalities. So it's just an incorrect perception out there that needs to be changed um, if it occurs. And that's one of the things that we are doing our research for is to clarify the biological issues in these patients. So that narrative of patients making it up can hopefully just end. And to go into the biological issues, I I could do that more too. Well, yes, we would. We would very much like to have you tell us more about the biological issues. What sorts of findings do you and your colleagues have that show differences? And what sorts of things do you think are leading people to develop long COVID? Yeah. So, The first trend that we're researching our initiative, the PolyBio Research Initiative, the Long COVID Research Initiative, is researching most intently, is just the straightforward possibility 
that at least a large number of patients who get long COVID simply have not fully cleared the SARS-CoV-2 virus from every area of their body. And instead, a low amount of the virus may persist in what we call a reservoir, usually in tissue, where it's better protected from the immune system and it remains in the patient. And when it's there, it can continue to provoke the immune system. It can continue to cause inflammation in the area. It can even continue to make proteins that affect how our human genes signal. And it can cause many of the symptoms of long COVID simply by remaining in the patient. So that topic of viral reservoir is the center area of research that we are looking at in long COVID. And basically, it's important to understand with that topic that patients, there are a number of studies now that have found the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the protein it creates in tissue samples from patients months after initial illness, sometimes up to a year after initial illness. And there is a couple studies, an autopsy study that found that SARS-CoV-2, the virus, is capable of persistence throughout many regions of the human body and brain. So what we need to clarify there, though, is that When a virus persists in that capacity in a reservoir, it is often not found in the blood of the patient because the blood, in simple terms, is just a dumb place to be. That's where the immune system is very robust. That's where you're going to get killed. So in simple terms, the viruses tend to hide in tissue where they're better protected. Also, the same patients no longer test positive on the regular nasal swab test, right? So obviously, everyone knows by now, if you think you have COVID, you get a nasal swab or a rapid test. That testing no longer works because, again, the virus is hidden in your tissue, and it's no longer in your nose or your blood in these areas that are easy to sample. And so that can incorrectly lead people to think that they might not st- people might not still have the virus that they had long covid But what we're doing is we're doing a number of studies where we're collecting tissue samples from patients with long COVID. So intestinal tissue, lung tissue, tissue, peripheral nerve tissue, salivary tissue. And we're going to, we're in the process of getting those studies off the ground to look for the virus and its proteins there in the areas of the body where they would be expected to be if this reservoir was happening. A lot of infectious disease experts shake their head in dismay because this is not a model that they're familiar with. Maybe in the case of tuberculosis, but there's been so much controversy about people with Lyme disease and and that have this long experience with symptoms that don't seem to clear. And there are a number of other tick-borne diseases and other infectious diseases that may lurk in the body. Uh, we certainly know that herpes, as a for example, can lurk in the basal ganglia in the brain. And so it seems like this needs a whole new way of thinking about medicine and infectious diseases in order to be able to figure out how to clear these viruses or the remnants of these viruses from the body. Is that starting to happen? Yes, absolutely. And you're correct that we do need a paradigm shift of real change in thinking on that topic because it is true, and, and doctors, MDs, are usually trained that blood work is going to give them the answers they need. And that's why I made it very clear that if there's a persistent SARS-CoV-2, and this would be true of other pathogens, Borrelia, the Lyme pathogen as well, it is unlikely, very unlikely to be in blood when it is in a chronic state. And I understand how there's confusion there. Then when someone takes a blood sample and doesn't find the organism in it, 
That's why we're doing these novel tissue studies, which need to happen more in Lyme and related conditions as well, to be able to better show that in a latent or chronic state, the pathogen may be there. It's just harder to find. And that has led to confusion. And the other thing that's going to help that new thinking, I I think, occur is that the technologies now that we can use to find pathogens, viral, bacterial, fungal pathogens, all of them are incredible. They are getting better year by year. Each year, we now use computers to find organisms. So we take a tissue sample, we pull the genetic material out of the sample, and then we map it to different organisms in the sample based on our knowledge of their genetic backbones. And that allows us to find organisms in ways that standard or earlier culture-based methods simply were not good enough at, at doing. So now these newer tools are allowing us to much better identify and document organisms in many body sites or, or, or samples where they were previously not thought to, to be in. So those changes, basically the understanding that persistence of organisms does not often occur in the blood, but in the tissues and the advanced technologies we can now use to study that topic, I do think that will usher in a large amount of change now in this area of research of pathogen persistence. Dr. Prowell, I wonder if you could tell us about a typical patient, if there is such a thing. Yes, there are many different manifestations of long COVID, all of them being serious. So some patients still just have ongoing debilitating respiratory symptoms. They're still having trouble breathing, right? Other patients have still lost their sense of smell and they still cannot smell, you know, after the infection. But a more classic case, if you want to call it that, of long COVID is has overlapping symptoms to what we see in the ME-CFS patients, that diagnosis I mentioned before, in which other viral infections drive chronic symptoms. And those, some of the core symptoms that those patients have are one key symptom called post-exertional malaise. And what I mean by that is that in the moment, the patient can do a little bit of exercise. They can move around, they can walk around a bit and exert themselves. But then 24 hours or 48 hours later, they crash from even that small amount of activity. And they their symptoms flare, and then they basically almost have to lay in bed and, and try very hard to recover from even that minor bout of exertion. And so that's called post-exertional malaise. In other words, it's after you exert yourself that you get a crash. That is a very common symptom. Also, autonomic dysfunction is common in patients, which means that sort of the patient's ability to regulate blood flow. So when you move from a sitting to a standing position, you should, there's a lot of different adjustments that happen so that the blood is correctly regulated and there's a lot of different signaling with the nervous system so that you can move quickly from sitting to standing. It's a different position. But in patients with long COVID, often when they move, they get incredibly dizzy and they get truly debilitating uh, symptoms that are tied to the, this, this nervous system, the autonomic nervous system that regulates the ability to, to, to correctly make those changes. And so that can make it hard for patients to even remain upright at all. And so that's a debilitating symptom. And another symptom that you'll see, another trend with symptoms that you'll see often is that the symptoms relapse and remit. In other words, patients go through periods where their symptoms get a lot worse 
they crash almost a bit, then they go through a period where they get a bit better, but they still don't feel okay, then they get a surge in symptoms, they crash. So there can often be sort of a cyclical nature to symptoms, which I find interesting as a microbiologist, because that does suggest that persistent pathogen activity plays a role in long COVID. Because pathogens, either SARS-CoV-2 or the herpes viruses, as you mentioned, for example, the herpes viruses are viruses that most people harbor, but they're usually in a latent state. They're dormant. They're not doing anything. But under conditions of immune dysregulation or immunosuppression, which could be COVID, a COVID case, they may emerge from that dormant state and begin to drive symptoms and begin to infect new sites. And when that happens, they may go into periods where they're dormant again, where they come back out, where their activity changes. And and it's interesting to see in long COVID patients that many of them do go through those periods of symptom changes, which again is just, you know, suggestive that there are pathogens involved in the disease process. Dr. Pearl, could somebody have had COVID but not know it, be asymptomatic, and then develop all of the symptoms that you're describing of long COVID? Unfortunately, yes. The majority of long COVID cases are occurring in patients who had mild or asymptomatic cases of COVID. There is actually less of these cases in hospitalized patients. So it is absolutely possible to develop long COVID after an asymptomatic infection. You're listening to Dr. Amy Proal. She's a microbiologist who studies the molecular mechanisms by which bacterial, fungal, and viral pathogens dysregulate human gene expression, immunity, and metabolism. Dr. Proal is the founder of the PolyBio Foundation and the chief science officer and co-founder of the Long COVID Research Initiative. After the break, we'll find out about treating long COVID. What is Dr. Proel's team working on as future treatments? Are there antivirals that might be helpful for this condition? Could probiotics or other ways of restoring the microbiome throughout the body help overcome this condition? Are there techniques that work? What about unusual approaches like anticoagulants to prevent microclots? If part of the problem is an overactive immune system, how can we calm it down? Researchers are looking at approaches like low-dose naltrexone or even glycerin, a compound from licorice. Considering how many people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 worldwide, there could be a lot of people suffering from chronic consequences. Is there room for optimism? We're always interested in stories of people who recover. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. 
The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. What can people with long COVID do to recover from this challenging condition? Doctors don't yet have a protocol that's been proven effective. But are there some approaches that might be helpful? Our guest today is Dr. Amy Proal. She is a microbiologist who studies the molecular mechanisms by which bacterial, fungal, and viral pathogens dysregulate human gene expression, immunity, and metabolism. Dr. Proal is the founder of the PolyBio Foundation and the chief science officer and co-founder of the Long COVID Research Initiative. Dr. Prowell, I'm wondering what kinds of treatments we currently have to offer people who are suffering from long COVID. And then after we talk about what's currently available, then we'll, we'll, we'll want to explore what you and your colleagues may be developing. That's a great question. And so I'm a PhD scientist and not a doctor, so I can't offer direct medical advice but I can tell you what my colleagues have communicated to me. So one issue that we see in patients with long COVID is there's a team of colleagues of ours in South Africa that have found small fibrin amyloid microclots in the blood of patients with long COVID, these little fibrin amyloid deposits. Interestingly, they've shown that if you spike blood with the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, that can accelerate. The, the formation of these clots, so that their formation is tied to the virus itself. But the little clots may clog up the little capillary blood vessels that feed nerves in the body or that bring oxygen to tissue, and they might cause some long COVID symptoms for that reason. And there are a couple groups that are using different anticoagulant medications or supplements to try to treat those microclots in patients with long COVID in the case that that might help. So that's one thing that I know is happening. The other trend that is very important, remember that I said that the majority of our research initiative on long COVID is based on studies with the central trend of understanding if patients may still harbor a bit of the virus in their tissue. Then use of antivirals, the continued more longer term use of antivirals is a clear clinical option to try. Now, it may be the case, and this requires further research, and that is something we're working on, that combinations of antivirals will be needed or longer courses of antivirals will be needed. And also, we don't have that many antivirals for SARS-CoV-2. We do have Paxlovid, but we do have a few others. We need even more to be developed to bring into the space. But there is a team at Stanford University, and they did publish a case history that showed that a patient with long COVID who was given the antiviral Paxlovid for SARS-CoV-2 did have improvement in their symptoms after that dose of pa- uh, after that round of Paxlovid. So certainly using antivirals is something that many people are looking at, longer term antivirals. And then, as I mentioned, another core trend in long COVID is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus may downregulate the patient's immune response in a way that allows previously harbored pathogens like the herpes viruses to emerge from dormancy and themselves drive symptoms. 
in that case, drugs or supplements that target herpes viruses are also under high consideration. So there are some antivirals that target herpes viruses, Valtrex, Valcite. None of them are perfect for Epstein-Barr virus, which is one of the viruses we do see reactivate most in long COVID. And yet I know some MDs that are still trying those antivirals in cases to try to mitigate the potential herpes virus reactivation. Those are some trends. Another one is vagus nerve stimulation. So if you still retain the virus in your tissue in a low level, or even if there's still inflammation in your body from the infection, there's a very important nerve that innervates much of the human body that connects the gut and other major body sites like the lung to the brain. And that nerve is called the vagus nerve. And so The vagus nerve, if it senses ongoing infectious or inflammatory issues, will convey a signal to the brain that's pro-inflammatory and unhelpful for driving many flu-like types of unautonomic symptoms. So some people use a device called a vagus nerve stimulator that you can put in the ear. And the goal is to stimulate that nerve to try to improve its signaling that may be dysregulated by the infection or other inflammatory events. So those are some treatment possibilities that are either being tested or tried in certain clinics. So let me summarize because I think I've got this. First, antivirals, the antivirals that target the coronavirus. So maybe molnupiravir, maybe Paxlovid, and hopefully there'll be some other antivirals that'll come along. Then Direct antivirals that would go after, for example, herpes infections like valcyclovir. And then finally, the vagus nerve. Are those the three key? And anticoagulants. And, of course, the anticoagulants, which will prevent blood clots, even little tiny ones from forming maybe aspirin or maybe one of the other prescription anticoagulants. Does that summarize where you are right now? That does summarize it. And I'll add one more in, which is that another key trend we're studying in long COVID is that if patients don't clear the virus from all their tissue, or even if they do sometimes, they're the sites that SARS-CoV-2 infects in the body are often not sterile. They contain robust microbiome communities. So we know that the gut, the lungs, a, a lot of human body sites contain interacting communities of bacteria, fungi, viruses called the human microbiome. And those communities, those ecosystems are normally in a state of balance when the person is in okay shape, when the immune system is in good shape. But under conditions of an infection, like SARS-CoV-2 or inflammation, those communities can shift collectively towards a state of imbalance that can cause many symptoms. And there are also studies, a few studies that show that that is happening in either the gut or oral cavity of patients with long COVID. So microbiome-based therapies are another huge consideration. And there are some doctors that already do certain supplement routines for microbiome. SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, occurs in some patients with long COVID, and there are treatment protocols for that. And there are companies that are creating and developing even more innovative microbiome-based therapeutics that we might be able to bring into the long COVID space to basically restore the balance of the ecosystems that may be thrown off by COVID. Now, we have heard of restoring the, the, this, this microbiome in the large intestine with a fecal transplant, but I'm not aware 
of a way that you could restore it in, for example, the mouth. Are there new techniques for that? It depends. The gut is by far the most researched area for intervention at this point in time. And that's the one that I'm most familiar with. So I agree with you. There are protocols that use supplements and probiotics to improve, to attempt to improve gut microbiome health. Fecal transplantation is absolutely an interesting area of treatment that is being somewhat trialed in related conditions that that I do think has potential. Um, the oral and other microbiomes, no, there's less actual data there, but I do know that there are biotech companies looking at that space. I wonder if we could talk a moment about the immune system, since that has been proposed as one possibility, an overactive immune system. And there is a small pilot study that was done with low-dose naltrexone that was published in the journal Brain Behavior and Immunity Health, in which they gave very low doses, I think one to three milligrams of naltrexone, which is a drug that's used for opioid dependence or alcohol abuse disorder. Any thoughts at all about a drug like naltrexone in low doses that's sometimes used for autoimmune conditions? Yeah. I do know of case reports of patients or cases where patients with long COVID and ME-CFS as well have benefited from low-dose naltrexone or LDN. The only issue that I have there is no one really understands the mechanism of action of LDN when it is given in those very low doses. So it's obviously not that alcohol, you know, mitigating effect. At low doses, it seems to act in different ways on the immune system. And I think that those mechanisms need to be better studied because there are people who also think that it may modulate the immune response to better control infection. So benefiting from LDN, I don't think necessarily means that you just had an immune system that was out of whack. It may also be that LDN helped you control some of the pathogens I mentioned. It's just that that area of research needs further study. And because if you think about it, you're correct that it is known that LDN can help people with so-called autoimmune disease. But if you look at the research on many conditions that have been deemed autoimmune, they're changing into conditions in which viral infection is interestingly at their root. So take multiple sclerosis, for example. There were two huge studies this year, one from Harvard, one from Stanford, that showed that Epstein-Barr virus infection seems to play a central role in MS. In fact, the Stanford team actually walked through the process by which the immune system in the brain fires on an Epstein-Barr virus protein. And then that same immune cell or antibody cross-reacts with a human receptor with a similar structure. But that's just collateral damage. The original response in the MS brain was towards the virus. So now you have to say, is autoimmune disease purely the immune system? you know, sort of messing up on its own? Or are we looking at more conditions tied to infection? And so there's a lot of overlap there in sort of, sort of understanding infectious contributions to autoimmunity. Now, the naltrexone, low-dose naltrexone study that Joe just mentioned is very small. It's a pilot study. There are a bunch of others. I am wondering how anyone can keep up with all of the very many different studies that are going on trying to address different compounds that might 
uh, be useful against COVID or long COVID. For example, not long ago, we saw a study suggesting that glycerin, the active component in licorice, could interfere with the ability of the virus to attach to the ACE2 receptor. But, you know, with little studies going on all over the world, how does anyone keep up with all that? That's a good question. We have people on our teams who attempt to keep up with those studies and document them, but there could be a much better central repository for such studies and drug candidates, preferably developed by the government, because that would just allow for the funding that would really make it most accessible to happen. In the meantime, certain long COVID clinics are doing a really good job trying to keep up with that data. And we're actually working with David Petrino, who's an amazing uh, researcher at Mount Sinai in New York, to start a new long COVID clinic at Sinai that will not just treat long COVID, but also ME-CFS, also chronic Lyme disease, patients with these different infection-associated chronic conditions in concert. And as part of that clinic, we're creating a really organized system for um for keeping track of these studies and for also developing and moving forward the ones with the most potential into research and clinical trials. It seems to me that, uh, that we need an incredible dedication and financial support from the federal government because I'm worried about the long-term consequences. And what I mean by that is 600 million people, more than 600 million people worldwide have been infected. And even if it's, quote unquote, only 5% or 10% who go on to develop long COVID, that is an unbelievable number of people. I'm worried that we may see more dementia, more heart problems. I'm wondering if there is anything else that concerns you in terms of the, the chronic outcome of being infected with um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yes, I'm extremely concerned. I, I, Alzheimer's is also being connected to viral activity. So the plaque that forms in the Alzheimer's brain, there's a team at Harvard that's shown that that plaque may actually form in response to viruses in brain tissue. So we're, we're talking about a research community that increasingly understands that viruses may be at the root of a growing number of chronic conditions. And we're looking at patients, you know, who are getting infected, obviously there's no end in sight to this pandemic if you're looking at reality. So people are getting SARS-CoV-2 again and again and again, every day, every minute. Someone just got it now. It is absolutely unsustainable to keep this up. We, as you said, even if 1% of people who get COVID develop chronic symptoms, that's an astounding number of patients who are sick and people remain ill for life. These are patients, well, if they are like MECFS patients, which they seem very like, those patients remain ill for life. So certainly people enter completely, can enter complete states of disability. They lose their job. Their family has trouble supporting them. They lose their house. We have a report from Brookings, who was done by one of my close friends, the Brookings Institute, that suggests there's a huge economic burden of long COVID now, and that long COVID cases may account for up to 15% of people who are, there's a, a labor shortage, and up to 15% of people in that labor shortage may just be occurring because of people with long COVID who can't work anymore. It is not sustainable. Dr. Prowell, 
is there any room for optimism? Do you know of long COVID patients who have uh, either been cured or gotten much better? I think there's room for optimism, but we do need more funding. We do need more attention on the topic. There are scientists who truly understand how to study this topic. We have many of them on our teams. There are good ideas. There are good technologies, but we need more funding. We need more attention on the topic to keep it going. And we need people to take COVID itself more seriously. We cannot all walk around with no masks and pretend COVID is not happening anymore. The best way to not get long COVID is to not get COVID in the first place. I really think we need to take that more seriously again as a society. How are ordinary uh, doctors, internists, family practice physicians out there in the hinterland dealing with long COVID patients if they're not part of a hospital system with a dedicated clinic? Yeah, the truth is that they're struggling. So first of all, there's such a demand for patients to see that kind of doctor that they have waiting lists that are sometimes up to two years long. They have way too many cases. They are trying to see patients as often as they can. But as you probably understand, to be able to truly take a history of a patient with long COVID that can clue you into the major things that you would want to attempt to treat in their case, you need a long appointment. You need time to discuss the different issues that the patient has faced over time. So the biggest issue is that an insurance visit, a classic insurance covered visit, really doesn't cover enough time to get that important case history. Insurance visits often cover seven, 10 minutes at most in a doctor appointment. So these doctors often can't take insurance just so that they have the time that they need to spend with their patient. That means that only certain patients who have money can afford to see them, which is definitely not okay. We, we need doctors and, and clinic and treatment for people with all different economic levels. But if you're lucky enough to be a patient who can pay out of pocket to see a doctor under those conditions, who can get on a waiting list and be seen within the year, then those doctors do take a lot of factors into consideration, the patient's diet, the patient's infectious history, they will do usually run other labs, they'll do pathogen testing that I think is important, they do do some testing for coagulation or vasculature issues that's sometimes possible. Those are also doctors that tend to to go towards some of the gut microbiome approaches that can be beneficial. So there are doctors, a lot of those doctors are derived from what is called the functional medicine community, which are doctors that in a sense left stringent mainstream institutions where there was a time limit on how they could see patients set up their own practice and are now practicing um, functional medicine in that capacity. Have you heard of any cases where patients have actually been cured or gotten much better over time with COVID or ME, CFS? Very anecdotally, there are patients in long COVID support groups who report improvement when they take the antiviral medications, differs from patient to patient. That would be what I hear most often anecdotally again, um, in, from patients is that antivirals seem to help. I don't know of any necessarily cure stories, but people who report that they got a lot better with antivirals. Again, though, that area of re really needs more research because there are patients who have felt better. Again, anecdotally, I'm talking about a support group here, not a paper. 
after an antiviral, but then in some cases, their symptoms came back later. So it's possible that the vi- you know, antiviral could knock down the virus for a bit if it's there in a chronic capacity, but then maybe a little bit comes back again. You know what I mean? So we, we need more research on the topic. The other treatment that I hear most from patients is that there are some patients that seem to have benefited greatly from the anticoagulants. And I think there's a doctor in South Africa who does think that some of the patients he's treated with quite a few anticoagulants have, have improved greatly. Is there any question that we have not asked you that you would like to answer? No, I think you ask good questions. I think that research is going to be key to keep identifying the core biological drivers of long COVID. But I think that sometimes you hear that we don't have leads when it comes to long COVID. And our research team does not think that's the case. We think there are clear leads in long COVID. We think that the lack of clearance of the virus, there's there's growing evidence for that possibility, and we're we're working on studying it comprehensively. The herpes virus reactivation, again, it's being documented. Microbiome imbalances are being documented. Vagus nerve issues are starting to be documented. So what I think it's important to emphasize is long COVID is not a mystery. There are actually very clear factors that we're seeing evidence for. And thankfully, we're able to design very comprehensive research studies on those topics. And that does give true hope that then we can identify biomarkers and other metrics that can give us clear therapeutic and clinical trial targets. Dr. Amy Proal, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Great. My pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Amy Proal. She's a microbiologist who studies the molecular mechanisms by which bacterial, fungal, and viral pathogens dysregulate human gene expression, immunity, and metabolism. Dr. Proal is the founder of the PolyBio Foundation and the chief science officer and co-founder of the Long COVID Research Initiative. Earlier, we spoke with Dr. Leora Horwitz, professor of population health and medicine at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Horwitz is part of the NIH Recover Initiative to better understand long COVID. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wodarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. The herb of the month is milk thistle. More information at GaiaHerbs.com. Today's show is number 1,327. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Let us know what you think about today's show. This week, the podcast has some extra information that wouldn't fit in the broadcast. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter and get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also get regular access to our weekly podcast You can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, 
I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.